In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, the text before us is Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. This is a brief text, and I only have two major parts to this sermon. So the first part is this, who Jesus is talking to. When Jesus speaks a parable, for the most part, he does it in response to, somebody, uh, to something that somebody just said or something someone just did. He's responding to that. Well, the question is, what prompted Jesus to say this parable, this very text? Verse 9 tells us, <clears throat> he, it says that Jesus told this parable to, though, to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those are two sides of the same coin. If you think you're righteous, you'll treat others with contempt. If you treat them with contempt, it's because you think you're righteous. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word trust and persuaded are the same word. So in other words, these people persuaded themselves. They convinced themselves that they were righteous, not that they were more righteous, Not that they were kind of righteous, but that they were completely righteous. That's what they were convinced of. They were persuaded by this. This means they believed that they were indeed good enough, righteous and holy enough to have earned their way to heaven, to stand before God. And so the question is, well, what persuaded them of this? What convinced them? Well, they were convinced of their righteousness when they compared themselves to other people. When they compared their own life, their works, their decisions to the people around them and what they did, well, they felt better about themselves. They looked around and they saw people extort money from other people. They saw people commit adultery, shacking up with anyone, living together, fornicating, these sort of things. They saw that the people around them didn't even go to church. They didn't give offering. They didn't fast. They didn't deny themselves in any way. They compared themselves to those people. And then they saw this massive difference between the way they were living and the way everybody else was living their life. And because of this, Jesus says, they treated others with contempt as they despised others. They looked down on them and they counted them absolutely worthless. I want to take a moment here to point out the obvious. Is someone who gives money to the church more righteous and actually a better person than someone who robs a bank? Yes. Absolutely. Of course they are better. Is someone who remains faithful in his marriage better than someone who breaks his marriage vow? Yes. 100%. Is someone who practices self-control, denies himself, and even fasts better than someone who is a glutton, a drunkard, someone who can never tell themselves no? The answer is yes, obviously. It is far better and more righteous to be generous instead of selfish. I know you guys were expecting me to say something else here. But let me, uh, let me finish this. Uh, it is far better to be more righteous than, um, uh, and generous than selfish. It's better to be self-controlled instead of gluttonous and so on. These are obvious things. 
And that means you church-going Christians are indeed better than those who don't come to church. You are better than adulterers and extortioners and unbelievers. You actually come to church and they don't. You pray and they don't. You support the church with your offering and they spend it on themselves. They don't. You fast and deny yourself things to not get attached to anything in this world and they don't. Yes, you are better than a lot of people around you. In fact, even in this very city and the surrounding homes. You are kinder. You are more reasonable. You are more loving. You are more generous than the world around you. You do better works and you conduct your life in a better way than the people around you. You guys support babies that you don't even know, that you've never met. And you want them to live because God loves them. And the world around you wants to murder these babies for money. That's better, right? You guys uphold marriage as the lifelong union between a man and a woman. And the people around you have one night stands and divorce at the slightest inconvenience or disagreement. You guys, and I'm speaking for all Christians, say that men should be men and women should be women. That there are people, and, 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 and uh, contrary to that, there are people around you who advocate for doctors to mutilate children in some massive experiment to try and change boys into girls. Things like this. So, is what you are doing and saying and supporting better than what the people around you are doing and saying and supporting. 100%. Yes, that is obvious. That is the case. Of course it is. You are indeed more righteous than the people around you, and there's no doubt in my mind of that, about that. Just like the Pharisee was indeed more righteous than the people around him, you too are more righteous than the people around you. Okay. Here's the problem. <clears throat> Being more righteous and better than the person next to you doesn't mean that you are righteous. Do you see? Doing more and better good works than the people around you doesn't mean that you're not a sinner too. The only people that God allows into heaven are not those who are more righteous than others, but those who are righteous, who have made it. So let me explain this with an analogy. Imagine there's a, an actual lethal disease that's going around. And imagine that this disease has a number of symptoms. Some are going to cough, some sneeze, some will bleed from their eyes or things like this, weep in agony and pain. Others will be paralyzed. It's the same disease, but there's just a, a different degree of it where it, where it uh, takes you. Now imagine you wake up one morning and your throat is hurting. And uh, so you go to the doctor and he runs a test on you and then the doctor comes back and he says, look, I ran the test, you have the disease, you have the lethal disease, you need the antidote. And then you laugh and you say, look, that's ridiculous, I don't. I feel fine, I have a sore throat, that's all it is. There are people out there who are paralyzed and they're dying 
and they're vomiting and bleeding and all these sort of things. I'm not. I don't need what you have to give me. And the doctor then says, look, you fool. This isn't a competition. This isn't how this works. You're not healthy because you're less sick than everyone else. You're healthy when the disease is gone. These people have worse symptoms of the disease, but that doesn't mean you don't have the disease too. So stop comparing yourself to other people who are sick too. You need the cure as much as they do. The point here is that you're not healthy because you're less sick than the people around you. And you're not righteous because you're less sinful than the people next to you. You're comparing yourself to the wrong people if you want to do this. If you want to compare yourself to people, you're, you've been choosing the wrong people. Instead of comparing yourself to sick people, compare yourself to someone who's healthy. Instead of comparing yourself to extortioners and adulterers and thieves, compare yourself to God. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you're going to compete and compare yourself, he is the one you need to compare yourself to. The, the way to get into heaven is not by being less imperfect than the people next to you. You must be perfect. You're not perfect because you have less imperfections. The standard is perfection. So if you compare yourself to God, you will see then by contrast what you really look like, what your heart really is. You do that by looking at the life of Christ. How did he live his life? He never failed to pray. He never worried about anything. He never repaid evil for evil. He never sinned even while he was angry. He never doubted the Father. He never once had an evil thought or a lustful desire cross his mind. He was loving us until the end. And with his dying breath, he pleaded for the forgiveness of our sins, the ones who put him on the cross. That is what a righteous person looks like. How much of that describes you? So that's the first point. Who is Jesus talking to? That's the first part. People who, he talks to people who are trusting in themselves that they were righteous by comparing themselves to others. The second point is this, is what he tells them. Jesus does this by giving a parable and then he compares uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, but he doesn't compare their works. He compares their prayer to God, what they ask for. The Pharisee says this, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All of those things are good. Those are good things. But the tax collector, on the other hand, says this. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, which means the other was condemned. He was not justified. Now, I want to be really clear here and, and tell you this, that the tax collector didn't plea. He, he didn't plead for, the, uh, plead for the general mercy of God, or he didn't just ask God for some help to become a better person. What this man asked for was blood. He asked for the blood of a sacrifice to cover his sins. 
And I'll show you this. When it comes to the man's words, the English translations read, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. But that is not what the Greek says. That is not what it says. It says this. God be propitiated to me, the sinner. That's very different. Uh, First of all, he doesn't just say, I am a sinner among many. He says, I am the sinner. The only one in this conversation is me and God. God is the holy one and I am then the sinner. That's, that's the relationship here. The second thing is he doesn't just ask for some vague general mercy of God. He asks for the specific thing, one very particular thing. He says, God be propitiated to me. What does propitiation mean? Uh, I, it, it's my theory that I think the translators thought that Christians don't know what the word propitiation means. And they said, well, we think they know what mercy means, so let's translate it as mercy instead of propitiation. I think that's a bad idea. Just translate it as it is. Just what's the word? Well, the word propitiation uh, means that it means to make atonement for. It means to take away the anger through satisfaction. And most specifically, it's used in this way, to give the forgiveness of sins through a bloody sacrifice. That's what it means. And we know that this is what the tax collector pleads for because Jesus began the parable by saying two men went into, went up into the temple to pray. We gloss over that part of the text. I've done it for so many years, but this is crucial for understanding what's going on here. The two men went into the temple to, to, to pray. Public prayer like that, going into the temple in that way, was allowed in the temple on morning and evening only once a year, only at one time a year. And it was on one particular day. And it was the day of the atonement, what we call Yom Kippur. The day of atonement was the most holy and solemn day. And according to Leviticus 16, it says that this was done only once a year. It's the day when the firstborn male lamb without blemish was sacrificed on the altar and his blood was sprinkled over the altar And Leviticus says the lamb was sacrificed because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins may have been. This means that the one day that the Pharisee and tax collector are in the temple is the day that the lamb is being sacrificed for the sins of the world. Uh, And while that's happening, the Pharisee is talking about himself. And while that's happening, the tax collector's talking only about the blood of this sacrifice. And this is the point of the parable. When you stand before God, what will you talk about? What will you say? What are the things that will come out of your mouth? You have only one of two options. You can either talk about you or him. You can talk about what you have done, your works, or his. You either try to tell God all of the long list of good things that you've done, which are never good enough, or you can ask God for the good thing he has done for you in Christ, that is, forgive your sins. You either trust in yourself or you trust in him. You either talk about yourself or you talk about Jesus, his only begotten son, the lamb of God who bears the sins of the world, who is the propitiation for our sins. And this is everything for us Christians. 
This is the beating heart and center of our theology. Jesus doesn't say, he's not saying, just comparing this and saying, well, look, this is a better and more preferable way to pray. No, he says, this is the only way to pray. That's it. There is no other option. God will not listen to the other one. He doesn't say that, look, it's just a matter of opinion here. We can agree to disagree. One faith is as good as the other as long as they're sincere. Well, they all lead to the same place. He doesn't say that. He says one man went home justified and the other did not. One went home justified and the other condemned. Still in his sins. There's only one way. One went to heaven and one went to hell. All who stand before God and dare to talk about their good works, no matter how impressive and beautiful they might be, will be condemned. That's what Jesus is saying. Because even your greatest works are still not good enough. They have fallen very short of the glory of God. But all who stand before God, who know their unworthiness, and who talk about his dear sacrifice for our sins, pleading that God would turn away from all of my sins on account of the blood of Christ the Lord, they will go home justified. Because what Jesus did is good enough. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says again, for I decided to know nothing among you. I know a lot of things, but I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. In Galatians 6 says, may I never boast except in what? In the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. This is why... This is why we don't sing every hymn in the hymnal or every hymn that's ever written. Because some hymns aren't good. Some hymns dare to sing to God, but they will not mention the bitter suffering and death of Christ our Lord. And because of that, it's not a good hymn. Why would we sing that? This is also why all sermons aren't good. There are some sermons and preachers who can entertain you for hours, but they will not mention even the atonement of Christ. And that's a bad sermon. It's a sermon that has failed. This is also why not every church service and style of worship is good. Because some churches focus so much on how they preach, how they sing, what they sing, what the service looks like, how it feels. They end up talking more about themselves than about Jesus and him gasping for air for the forgiveness of our sins on his cross. And that is a bad service. That is a service that has failed. The, the, reason, the, the reason I'm insisting upon this so much, and I, I do so throughout the year, probably ad nauseum, is to prepare you for your final day. Because on that final day, what will you say? If God asks you, look, <clears throat> why should I let you into heaven? Are you going to say, well, I went to church every Sunday. I volunteered in the church. I helped with Sunday school. 
or I played the music and the organ. I was the secretary. I was the janitor. I worked for the church for 35 years. I fed the hungry and the homeless. I never stole. I never killed anyone. I set up and took down in the church. I gave so much offering to the church. I helped build a sanctuary, these sort of things. This is all great and good, and it's very, very impressive. But a Christian who stands before God would never even dare to say that. He wouldn't. Someone who says this will be condemned. And that that is not faith in God. That is faith in yourself. But when a Christian stands before the throne of God and when God asks him, why should I let you into heaven? The Christian says, I don't deserve to see your kingdom because I am a poor, miserable sinner. Even my best days were never, ever enough. And I deserve temporal and eternal punishment. But your son, your son has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature. And your son purchased and won me from all of my sins from death and from the power of the devil. And he did it not with gold or silver, but with his holy and precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness and blessedness and innocence and blessedness, just as he's risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. That is the difference. The Christian pleads and speaks only of Christ and his suffering. And says, that is the only connection that I have to God my Father, is him. All of these good works, don't mention them. Don't look at them. Because they're all stained with sin. Even my my most generous moment, even my, my most lovely moment, even my kindest moment is still stained by sin. So don't even look at that. Instead, look at the bleeding heart of Jesus. That is my salvation. So dear saints, the, the one thing that will matter then on that final day is the one thing that matters now, today. And that is Christ, our Savior, who opened up his veins, poured out his life for you, covering you, washing away your sins, imputing to you every good work and every ounce of his righteousness. In your baptism, before you lived your days, Jesus gave you his righteousness. And in his word right now, he gives you his righteousness again. He declares you righteous. And in a few minutes in the Lord's Supper, Jesus will again come to you and give you all of his righteousness again. As he gives you his very body and blood, his sinless body and blood to atone for you, to give you what he accomplished on the cross. And he will do all these things so that you can die in peace and go home justified today. Hear the words of this hymn. Since Christ has full atonement made, and brought to us salvation. Each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your death is now my life indeed, for you have paid my ransom. 
The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.